0: Section twenty eight of the South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa Jevons. The South Pole by Roald Amundsen. Translation by A. G. Carter. Section twenty eight, Volume two, Chapter thirteen. The Return to Framheim. Part two. The first thing we did on reaching the depot was to take out the dogs' carcasses that lay there and cut them into big lumps that were divided among the dogs. They looked rather surprised, they had not been accustomed to such rations. We threw three carcasses onto the sledges so as to have a little extra food for them on the way down. The butcher's was not a very friendly spot this time either. True, it was not the same awful weather as on our first visit. But it was blowing a fresh breeze with a temperature of minus nine point four degrees fahrenheit which after the heat of the last few days seemed to go to one's marrow and did not invite us to stay longer than was absolutely necessary therefore as soon as we had finished feeding the dogs and putting our sledges in order we set out although the ground had not given us the impression of sloping we soon found out that it did so when we got under way it was not only downhill but the pace became so great that we had to stop and put brakes under the sledges as we advanced the apparently unbroken wall opened more and more and showed us at last our old familiar ascent there lay mount Oller engelstadt snow-clad and cold as we saw it the first time as we rounded it we came onto the severe steep slope where on the way south i had so much admired the work done by my companions and the dogs that day but now I had an even better opportunity of seeing how steep this ascent really had been. Many were the brakes we had to put on before we could reduce the speed to a moderate pace, but even so we came down rapidly, and soon the first part of the descent lay behind us. So as not to be exposed to possible gusts from the plain, we went round Mount Engelstadt, and camped under the lee of it, well content with the day's work. The snow lay here as on our first visit, deep and loose— and it was difficult to find anything like a good place for the tent. We could soon feel that we had descended a couple of thousand feet, and come down among the mountains. It was still, absolutely still, and the sun broiled us as on a day of high summer at home. I thought, too, that I could notice a difference in my breathing. It seemed to work much more easily and pleasantly. Perhaps it was only imagination. At one o'clock on the following morning we were out again, The sight that met our eyes that morning when we came out of the tent was one of those that will always live in our memories. The tent stood in the narrow gap between Fritjof Nansen and Ole Engelstad. The sun, which now stood in the south, was completely hidden by the latter mountain, and our camp was thus in the deepest shadow. But right against us, on the other side, the Nansen mountain raised its splendid ice-clad summit high towards heaven, gleaming and sparkling in the rays of the midnight sun. The shining white passed gradually, very gradually, into pale blue, then deeper and deeper blue, until the shadow swallowed it up. But down below, right on the Heiberg Glacier, its ice-covered side was exposed. Dark and solemn the mountain mass stood out. Mount Engelstadt lay in shadow, but on its summit rested a beautiful, light little cirrus cloud, red with an edge of gold. Down over its side. The blocks of ice lay scattered pell-mell. And farther down, on the east, rose Don Pedro Christopherson, partly in shadow, partly gleaming in the sun, a marvellously beautiful sight. And all was so still, one almost feared to disturb the incomparable splendour of the scene. We now knew the ground well enough to be able to go straight ahead without any detours. The huge avalanches were more frequent than on the outward journey, One mass of snow after another plunged down. Don Pedro was getting rid of his winter coat. The going was precisely the same, loose, fairly deep snow. We went quite easily over it, however, and it was all downhill. On the ridge, where the descent to the glacier began, we halted to make our preparations. Brakes were put under the sledges, and our two ski-sticks were fastened together to make one strong one. "'we should have been able to stop instantly if surprised by crevasse as we were going. "'We ski-runners went in front. "'The going was ideal here on the steep slope, "'just enough loose snow to give one good steering on ski. "'We went whizzing down, "'and it was not many minutes before we were on the Heiberg Glacier. "'For the drivers it was not quite such plain sailing. "'They followed our tracks, but had to be extremely careful on the steep fall.' We camped that evening on the self-same spot where we had had our tents on November the 18th, at about 3,100 feet above the sea. From here one could see the course of the Axel-Heiberg Glacier right down to its junction with the barrier. It looked fine and even, and we decided to follow it instead of climbing over the mountain, as we had done on the way south. Perhaps the distance would be somewhat longer, but probably we should make a considerable saving of time.' We had now agreed upon a new arrangement of our time, the long spells of rest were becoming almost unbearable. Another very important side of the question was that, by a reasonable arrangement, we should be able to save a lot of time, and reach home several days sooner than we had reckoned. After a great deal of talk on one side and on the other, we agreed to arrange matters thus. We were to do our fifteen geographical miles, or twenty-eight kilometres, and then have a sleep of six hours turn out again and do fifteen miles more and so on in this way we should accomplish a very good average distance on our day's march we kept to this arrangement for the rest of the journey and thus saved a good many days our progress down the highberg glacier did not encounter any obstructions only at the transition from the glacier to the barrier were there a few crevasses that had to be circumvented at seven a m on january the sixth we halted at the angle of land that forms the entrance to the Heiberg Glacier, and thence extends northward. We had not yet recognised any of the land we lay under, but that was quite natural, as we now saw it from the opposite side. We knew, though, that we were not far away from our main depot, in eighty-five degrees five minutes south. On the afternoon of the same day, we were off again. From a little ridge we crossed immediately after starting, Viarland thought he could see the depot down on the barrier, AND IT WAS NOT VERY LONG BEFORE WE CAME IN SIGHT OF MOUNT BETTY AND OUR WAY UP. AND NOW WE COULD MAKE SURE WITH THE GLASSES THAT IT REALLY WAS OUR DEPOT THAT WE SAW, THE SAME THAT BIALIN THOUGHT HE HAD SEEN BEFORE. WE THEREFORE SET OUR COURSE STRAIGHT FOR IT, AND IN A FEW MINUTES WE WERE ONCE MORE ON THE BARRIER, January the sixth, 11 P.M., AFTER A STAY OF 51 DAYS ON LAND. IT WAS ON NOVEMBER the 17TH THAT WE HAD BEGUN THE ASCENT. WE REACHED THE DEPOT AND FOUND EVERYTHING IN ORDER. The heat here must have been very powerful. Our lofty, solid depot was melted by the sun into a rather low mound of snow. The pemmican rations that had been exposed to the direct action of the sun's rays had assumed the strangest forms, and, of course, they had become rancid. We got the sledges ready at once, taking all the provisions out of the depot and loading them. We left behind some of the old clothes we had been wearing all the way from here to the pole and back, When we had completed all this repacking and had everything ready, two of us went over to Mount Betty, and collected as many different specimens of rock as we could lay our hands on. At the same time we built a great cairn, and left there a can of seventeen litres of paraffin, two packets of matches, containing twenty boxes, and an account of our expedition. Possibly someone may find a use for these things in the future. We had to kill Frithjof, one of Bjarland's dogs, at this camp, he had latterly been showing marked signs of shortness of breath, and finally this became so painful to the animal that we decided to put an end to him. Thus brave Frithiof ended his career. On cutting him open it appeared that his lungs were quite shriveled up. Nevertheless, the remains disappeared pretty quickly into his companion's stomachs. What they had lost in quantity did not apparently affect their quality. Nigger, one of Hassel's dogs, had been destroyed on the way down from the plateau, We thus reached this point again with twelve dogs, as we had reckoned on doing, and left it with eleven. I see in my diary the following remark. The dogs looked just as well as when we left Framheim. On leaving the place a few hours later we had provisions for thirty-five days on the sledges. Besides this, of course, we had a depot at every degree of latitude up to eighty degrees. It looked as though we had found our depot at the right moment, for when we came out to continue our journey, The whole barrier was in a blizzard. A gale was blowing from the south, with the sky completely clouded over, falling snow and drift united in a delightful dance, and made it difficult to see. The lucky thing was that now we had the wind with us, and thus escaped getting it all in our eyes, as we had been accustomed to. The big crevasse which, as we knew, lay right across the line of our route, made us go very carefully. To avoid any risk, Bjarland and Hassel, who went in advance, fastened an alpine rope between them. The snow was very deep and loose, and the going very heavy. Fortunately we were warned in time of our approach to the expected cracks by the appearance of some bare ice-ridges. These told us clearly enough that disturbances had taken place here, and that ever greater ones might be expected, probably near at hand. At that moment the thick curtain of cloud was torn asunder, "'and the sun pierced the whirling mass of snow. "'Instantly Hansen shouted, "'Stop, Bjarland!' "'He was just on the edge of the yawning crevasse. "'Bjarland himself has splendid sight, "'but his excellent snow-goggles, his own patent, "'entirely prevented his seeing. "'Well, Bjarland would not have been in any serious danger "'if he had fallen into the crevasse, "'as he was roped to hassle, "'but it would have been confoundedly unpleasant all the same.' As I have said before, I assume that these great disturbances here mark the boundary between the barrier and the land. This time, curiously enough, they seemed also to form a boundary between good and bad weather. For on the far side of them, to the north, the barrier lay bathed in sunshine. On the south, the blizzard raged worse than ever. Mount Betty was the last to send us its farewell. South Victoria land had gone into hiding and did not show itself again. "'As soon as we came into the sunshine, we ran upon one of our beacons. "'Our course lay straight towards it. "'That was not bad, steering in the dark. "'At 9 p.m. we reached the depot in 85 degrees south. "'Now we could begin to be liberal with the dog's food, too. "'They had double pemmican rations, "'besides as many oatmeal biscuits as they would eat. "'We had such masses of biscuits now "'that we could positively throw them about. "'Of course we might have left a large part of these provisions behind,' "'but there was a great satisfaction in being so well supplied with food, "'and the dogs did not seem to mind the little extra weight in the least. "'As long as things went so capitally as they were going, "'that is, with men and dogs exactly keeping pace with one another, "'we could ask for nothing better. "'But the weather that had cheered us was not of long duration. "'Same beastly weather,' my diary says, of the next stage. "'The wind had shifted to the north-west,' with overcast thick weather, and very troublesome drifting snow. In spite of these unfavourable conditions, we passed beacon after beacon, and at the end of our march had picked up all the beacons we had erected on this distance of seventeen miles and three-eighths. But, as before, we owed this to Hansen's good eyes. On our way southward we had taken a good deal of seal-meat, and had divided it among the depots we built on the barrier, "'in such a way that we were now able to eat fresh meat every day. "'This had not been done without an object. "'If we should be visited with scurvy, this fresh meat would be invaluable. "'As we were, sound and healthy as we had never been before, "'the seal-beef was a pleasant distraction in our menu, nothing more. "'The temperature had risen greatly since we came down on to the barrier, "'and kept steady at about plus fourteen degrees Fahrenheit. "'We were so warm in our sleeping-bags "'that we had to turn them with the hair out. "'That was better. "'We breathed more freely and felt happier. "'Just like going into an ice cellar,' somebody remarked. "'The same feeling as when, on a really warm summer day, "'one comes out of the hot sun into cool shade. "'January the 9th. "'Same beastly weather. "'Snow, snow, snow, nothing but snow. "'Is there no end to it?' thick too, so that we have not been able to see ten yards ahead. Temperature plus 17.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Thawing everywhere on the sledges, everything getting wet. Have not found a single beacon in this blind man's weather. The snow was very deep to begin with, and the going exceedingly heavy, but in spite of this the dogs managed their sledges very well.' That evening the weather improved, fortunately, and became comparatively clear by the time we resumed our journey at ten p.m. Not long after we sighted one of our beacons. It lay to the west, about two hundred yards away. We were thus not far out of our course. We turned aside and went up to it, as it was interesting to see whether our reckoning was in order. The beacon was somewhat damaged by sunshine and storms, but we found the paper left in it, which told us that this beacon was erected on November the fourteenth in eighty four degrees twenty six minutes south, it also told us what course to steer by compass to reach the next beacon, which lay five kilometres from this one, as we were leaving this old friend and setting our course as it advised to our unspeakable astonishment, two great birds, skewer gulls, suddenly came flying straight towards us. They circled round us once or twice and then settled on the beacon. Can anyone who reads these lines form an idea of the effect this had upon us? It is hardly likely. They brought us a message from the living world into this realm of death, a message of all that was dear to us. I think the same thoughts filled us all. They did not allow themselves a long rest, these first messengers from another world. They sat still a while, no doubt wondering who we were, then rose aloft and flew on to the south. Mysterious creatures! They were now exactly halfway between Framheim and the Pole, and yet they were going farther inland. Were they going over to the other side? Our march ended this time at one of our beacons, in 84 degrees, 15 minutes. It felt so good and safe to lie beside one of these. It always gave us a sure starting-point for the following stage. We were up at 4 a.m., and left the place a few hours later with the result that the day's march brought us thirty-four miles nearer Framheim. With our present arrangement we had these long day marches every other day. Our dogs need no better testimonial than this. One day seventeen miles, the next day thirty-four, and fresh all the way home. The two birds, agreeably as their first appearance had affected me, led my thoughts after a while in another direction, which was anything but agreeable. "'It occurred to me that these two might only be representatives of a larger collection of these voracious birds, and that the remainder might now be occupied in consuming all the fresh meat we had so laboriously transported with us and spread all over the plain in our depots. It is incredible what a flock of these birds of prey can get rid of. It would not matter if the meat were frozen as hard as iron. They would have managed it even if it had been a good deal harder than iron.' Of the seals' carcasses we had lying in eighty degrees, I saw in my thoughts nothing but the bones. Of the various dogs we had killed on our way south, and laid on the tops of beacons, I did not see even so much as that. Well, it was possible that my thoughts had begun to assume too dark a hue. Perhaps the reality would be brighter. Weather and going began by degrees to right themselves. It looked as if things would improve in proportion to our distance from land. Finally, both became perfect. The sun shone from a cloudless sky, and the sledges ran on the fine, even surface, with all the ease and speed that could be desired. Bjarland, who had occupied the position of forerunner all the way from the pole, performed his duties admirably. But the old saying that nobody is perfect applied even to him. None of us, no matter who it may be, can keep in a straight line when he has no marks to follow. All the more difficult is this when, as so often happened with us, one has to go blindly. Most of us, I suppose, would swerve now to one side, now to the other, and possibly end, after all this groping, by keeping pretty well to the line. Not so with Bjarland. He was a right-hand man. I can see him now. Hansen has given him the direction by compass, and Bjarland turns around, points his ski in the line indicated, and sets off with decision his movements clearly show that he has made up his mind cost what it may to keep in the right direction he sends his ski firmly along so that the snow spurts from them and looks straight before him but the result is the same if hansen had let bjarland go on without any correction in the course of an hour or so the latter would probably have described a beautiful circle and brought himself back to the spot from which he had started perhaps after all this was not a fault to complain of since we always knew with absolute certainty that, when we had got out of the line of beacons, we were to the right of it, and had to search for the beacons to the west. This conclusion proved very useful to us more than once, and we gradually became so familiar with Bialand's right-handed tendencies that we actually counted on them. On January the 13th, according to our reckoning, we ought to reach the depot in 83 degrees south. This was the last of our depots that was not marked at right angles to the route, and therefore the last critical point. The day was not altogether suited for finding the needle in the haystack. It was calm with a thick fog, so thick that we could only see a few yards in front of us. We did not see a single beacon the whole march. At 4 p.m. we had completed the distance, according to the sledge-meters, and reckoned that we ought to be in 83 degrees south, by the depot, but there was nothing to be seen." We decided, therefore, to set our tent, and wait till it cleared. While we were at work with this, there was a rift in the thick mass of fog, and there, not many yards away, to the west, of course, lay our depot. We quickly took the tent down again, packed it on the sledge, and drove up to our food mound, which proved to be quite in order. There was no sign of the birds having paid it a visit. But what was that? Fresh, "'well-marked dog-tracks in the newly-fallen snow. "'We soon saw that they must be the tracks of the runaways "'that we had lost here on the way south. "'Judging by appearances, they must have lain under the lee of the depot "'for a considerable time. Two deep hollows in the snow told us that plainly. "'And evidently they must have had enough food. "'But where on earth had they got it from? "'The depot was absolutely untouched,' in spite of the fact that the lumps of pemmican lay exposed to the light of day, and were very easy to get at, besides which the snow on the depot was not so hard as to prevent the dogs pulling it down and eating up all the food. Meanwhile the dogs had left the place again, as shown by the fresh trail, which pointed to the north. We examined the tracks very closely, and agreed that they were not more than two days old. They went northward, and we followed them from time to time on our next stage, At the beacon in 82 degrees 45 minutes, where we halted, we saw them still going to the north. In 82 degrees 24 minutes, the trail began to be much confused, and ended by pointing due west. That was the last we saw of the tracks, but we had not done with these dogs, or rather with their deeds. We stopped at the beacon in 82 degrees 20 minutes. Elsa, who had been laid on the top of it, had fallen down and lay by the side, The sun had thawed away the lower part of the beacon. So the roving dogs had not been here, so much was certain, for otherwise we should not have found Elsa as we did. We camped at the end of that stage by the beacon in 82 degrees 15 minutes, and shared out Elsa's body. Although she had been lying in the strong sunshine, the flesh was quite good when we had scraped away a little mouldiness. It smelt rather old, perhaps, but our dogs were not fastidious when it was a question of meat. On January the 16th we arrived at the depot in 82 degrees south. We could see from a long way off that the order in which we had left it no longer prevailed. When we came up to it we saw at once what had happened. The innumerable dog-tracks that had trampled the snow quite hard round the depot declared plainly enough that the runaways had spent a good deal of time here. Several of the cases belonging to the depot had fallen down, presumably from the same cause as Elsa, and the rascals had succeeded in breaking into one of them. Of the biscuits and pemmican which it had contained, nothing, of course, was left, but that made no difference to us now, as we had food in abundance. The two dogs' carcasses that we had placed on top of the depot, Uranus and Yala, were gone, not even the teeth were to be seen yet they had left the teeth of Lucy, whom they had eaten in eighty-two degrees three minutes. Yala's eight poppies were still lying on the top of a case. Curiously enough, they had not fallen down. In addition to all the rest, the beasts had devoured some ski-bindings and things of that sort. It was no loss to us as it happened, but who could tell which way these creatures had gone? If they had succeeded in finding the depot in eighty degrees south— they would probably by this time have finished our supply of seal-meat there. Of course it would be regrettable if this had happened, although it would entail no danger, either to ourselves or our animals. If we got as far as eighty degrees, we should come through all right. For the time being we had to console ourselves with the fact that we could see no continuation of the trail northward. We permitted ourselves a little feast here in eighty-two degrees, The chocolate pudding that Visting served as dessert is still fresh in my memory. We all agreed it came nearer perfection than anything it had hitherto fallen to our lot to taste. I may disclose the receipt. Biscuit crumbs, dried milk, and chocolate are put into a kettle of boiling water. What happens afterwards, I don't know. For further information, apply to Visting. Between 82 degrees and 81 degrees we came into our old marks of the second depot journey. On that trip we had marked this distance with splinters of packing-case at every geographical mile. That was in March 1911, and now we were following these splinters in the second half of January 1912. Apparently they stood exactly as they had been put in. This marking stopped in 81 degrees 33 minutes south, with two pieces of case on a snow pedestal. The pedestal was still intact and good. I shall let my diary describe what we saw on January the 18th. Unusually fine weather to-day, light south-southwest breeze, which in the course of our march cleared the whole sky. In 81 degrees 20 minutes we came abreast of our old big pressure ridges. We now saw far more of them than ever before. They extended as far as the eye could see, running north-east to south-west, in ridges and peaks." great was our surprise when a short time after we made out high bare land in the same direction, and not long after that two lofty white summits to the south-east, probably in about eighty-two degrees south. It could be seen by the look of the sky that the land extended from the north-east to south-west. This must be the same land that we saw lose itself in the horizon at about eighty-four degrees south, when we stood at a height of about four thousand feet, "'and looked out over the barrier during our ascent. "'We now have sufficient indications to enable us without hesitation "'to draw this land as continuous, carmen land. "'The surface against the land is violently disturbed, "'crevasses and pressure ridges, waves and valleys in all directions. "'We shall no doubt feel the effect of it to-morrow.' Although what we have seen apparently justifies us in concluding that Carmen Land extends from 86 degrees south to this position, about 81 degrees 30 minutes south, and possibly farther to the north-east, I have not ventured to lay it down thus on the map. I have contented myself with giving the name of Carmen Land to the land between 86 degrees and 84 degrees, and have called the rest Appearance of Land. It will be a profitable task for an explorer to investigate this district more closely. As we had expected, on our next stage we were made to feel the effect of the disturbances. Three times we had now gone over this stretch of the barrier without having really clear weather. This time we had it, and were able to see what it actually looked like. The irregularities began in 81 degrees 12 minutes south and did not extend very far from north to south, possibly about five kilometres, three-and-a-quarter miles. How far they extended from east to west is difficult to say, but at any rate as far as the eye could reach. Immense pieces of the surface had fallen away, and opened up the most horrible yawning gulfs, big enough to swallow many caravans the size of ours. From these open holes, ugly, wide cracks ran out in all directions— beside which mounds and haycocks were everywhere to be seen. Perhaps the most remarkable thing of all was that we had passed over here unharmed. We went across as light-footedly as possible, and at top speed. Hansen went halfway into a crevasse, but luckily got out of it again without difficulty. The depot in 81 degrees south was in perfect order, no dog-tracks to be seen there. Our hopes that the depot in eighty degrees south would be intact rose considerably. In eighty degrees forty-five minutes south lay the first dog we had killed, Borne. He was particularly fat and was immensely appreciated. The dogs no longer cared very much for pemmican. On January the twenty-first we passed our last beacon, which stood in eighty degrees twenty-three minutes south. Glad as we were to leave it behind, I cannot deny that it was with a certain feeling of melancholy that we saw it vanish. We had grown so fond of our beacons, and whenever we met them we greeted them as old friends. Many and great were the services these silent watchers did us on our long and lonely way. On the same day we reached our big depot in eighty degrees south, and now we considered that we were back. We could see at once that others had been at the depot since we had left it, and We found a message from Lieutenant Prestud, the leader of the Eastern Party, saying that he, with Stuberud and Johansen, had passed here on November the twelfth with two sledges, sixteen dogs, and supplies for thirty days. Everything thus appeared to be in the best of order immediately on arriving at the depot. We let the dogs loose, and they made a dash for the heap of seal's flesh, which had been attacked neither by birds nor dogs in our absence. It was not so much for the sake of eating that our dogs made their way to the meat mound, as for the sake of fighting. Now they really had something to fight about. They went round the seals' carcasses a few times, looked askance at the food and at each other, and then flung themselves into the wildest scrimmage. When this had been duly brought to a conclusion, they went away and lay round their sledges. The depot in eighty degrees south is still large, well supplied, and well marked, so it is not impossible that it may be found useful later. The journey from eighty degrees south to Framheim has been so often described that there is nothing new to say about it. On January the 25th, at four a.m., we reached our good little house again, with two sledges and eleven dogs, men and animals all hale and hearty. We stood and waited for each other outside the door in the early morning. Our appearance must be made altogether." "'It was so still and quiet. "'They must be all asleep. "'We came in. "'Stubberud started up in his bunk and glared at us. "'No doubt he took us for ghosts. "'One after another they woke up, "'not grasping what was happening. "'Then there was a hearty welcome home on all sides. "'Where's the fram?' was, of course, our first question. "'Our joy was great when we heard all was well. "'And what about the pole? Have you been there?' "'Yes, of course, otherwise you would hardly have seen us again.' Then the coffee kettle was put on, and the perfume of hot cakes rose, as in old days. We agreed that it was good outside, but still better at home. Ninety-nine days the trip had taken, distance about 1,860 miles. The Fram had come into the barrier on January 8th, after a 3 months voyage from Buenos Aires. All were well on board.' Meanwhile, bad weather had forced her to put out again. On the following day, the lookout man reported that the fram was approaching. There was life in the camp, on with furs and out with the dogs. They should see that our dogs were not worn out yet. We heard the engines panting and grunting, saw the crow's nest appear over the edge of the barrier, and at last she glided in, sure and steady. It was with a joyful heart I went on board and greeted all these gallant men— who had brought the Fram to her destination through so many fatigues and perils, and had accomplished so much excellent work on the way. They all looked pleased and happy, but nobody asked about the pole. At last it slipped out of Geertsen. Have you been there? Joy is a poor name for the feeling that beamed in my comrades' faces. It was something more. I shut myself up in the chart-house with Captain Nielsen, who gave me my mail, and all the news. Three names stood high above the rest, when I was able to understand all that had happened, the names of the three who gave me their support when it was most needed. I shall always remember them in respectful gratitude. His Majesty the King, Professor fridtjof Nansen, Don Pedro Christofferson. End of Section 28 End of Volume 2, Chapter 13 The Return to Framheim